0: Let's pray. Lord Almighty, one more time we come before you. You are indeed the only one to whom we can come. And we worship you tonight. And we ask that you would indeed open our ears so that we may hear your soft voice and we may change and become the men and women you have created us to be. Remove from us those distractions that would keep us from hearing you. And Lord, enable us to be... Uh, Hearers of the word and doers. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Heat and desperation poured from the traveler's face as he caught glimpses of the rocky crag towering above. Danger from robbers, danger from beasts, danger from scorching heat and bitter frost, danger from despair finally gave way to elation as he discerned his goal the cabin of the wise old man of the mountain eagerly he approached the cabin he caught the crackle of fire within and the soft singing of wise lips the pilgrim reached to open the door when he was suddenly mauled by a great brown bear According to Macbeth, life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Shakespeare must have known I was going to be here tonight. (laughs) This is a pretty dark assessment of life. Yet there are many of us who find life so Pain in birth, pain in life, and pain in death. What hope is there except to enjoy the fleeting pleasures offered offered to those of us who remain under this veil of tears? So bleak, in fact, is the view of many that they just close their eyes. They are unwilling to open them lest they may see the glory of God around us. We obsess with trinkets, and by going after them, we blind ourselves to the evidences of God's gracious, superlative blessings. We gaze at the riches of stuff. We gape at the power of money. We goggle at the ease of other circumstances. And when we do, we are willfully blind to the glory of God in Christ Jesus. And while it is true, the veil of some is darker than for others. We will see tonight that far from the anxious toil of the willfully blind heart, you and I can rest. We can rest in Christ's authority. Three things I want you to look for as we go through our passage tonight. The first is that Jesus gives us very clear teaching on who is out of the kingdom and who is in. In tonight's passage, Jesus very clearly outlines the characteristics of those who have chosen to be blind to the work of God, and these will be rejected from the kingdom. And he also characterizes those who have chosen to humbly depend on God, and they are those who will receive the kingdom. The second thing that we need is we will see a balance between God's work on the one hand and our work on the other. And this is going to be in regards both to salvation and sanctification, becoming a Christian and then living as a Christian. In this passage, we will see tonight a rebuke to both sides of the debate if they refuse to see the other. But lastly, and most importantly, what we are going to find in this passage is that Jesus is completely, sovereignly authoritative. He holds absolute authority over everyone's life, believer and unbeliever. And therefore, because Christ is in authority over all things, you may humbly trust him rather than wandering in the wilderness only to be eaten by Yogi Bear. You and I can rest in Christ's authority. You and I can choose to rest in Christ's authority, or we can be like those who are willfully blind to his glory and therefore be subject to a lifetime of toil, meaningless toil, and an eternity of shame. Let's begin by looking at our passage. Matthew chapter 11, starting verse 20. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. The first thing that we need to notice as we come to this part of our passage is that Jesus is calling out to people who are willfully Blind. They saw the greatest exhibition of miracles in the history of mankind and they did not repent. And Jesus is calling to them, but hear how He's calling to them. It's out of pity. He's come. He is declaring their doom so that they will repent. They will turn away from their willful blindness and they will turn to God to find their rest in Him. Now, listen, this is absolutely critical. Before you can understand the Word of God in any part of it, you must choose to impute to God the correct motives. There are many who consider themselves Arminians. Not because they don't recognize the sovereignty of God. I think pretty much all Christians recognize that God is sovereign. But because they have a skewed idea of God's motives. You see, God does not enjoy dealing out wrath. He tries to prevent it. In fact, you've heard me quote this verse many times. Ezekiel 18.32 where God says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone declares the Lord God. So turn and live. It's the same here. Jesus calls out to rebellious Santa Maria, California, please repent. Please turn and live. In this passage, you and I need to read with a heart that assigns loving motives to your Lord when you do, you will be closer to God's heart. You will be happier in your understanding of him and you will be more likely to think rightly after his own thoughts. Secondly, in this part of our passage, we notice that miracles in and of themselves do not save anyone. Jesus spoke to the people. He's calling out, he's pleading with the people where most of his mighty works had been done. They had seen healings. Perhaps they even saw people rise from the dead. And yet, they refused to observe properly. They had received greater light than most people in the world, and they chose to close their eyes. Jesus says they will therefore be judged the more strictly. If witnessing the greatest number of miracles the world has ever seen is not accompanied by faith, those miracles will not save. Listen to what D.A. Carson says on the purpose of miracles. This is from his commentary on John, but it applies here. He says, Jesus' miracles are never simply naked displays of power. Still less are they neat conjuring tricks to impress the masses, but they are signs. They are significant displays of power that point beyond themselves, point beyond merely opening blind eyes, point beyond merely opening deaf ears. And they point beyond themselves to the deeper realities that can only be perceived with the eyes of faith. And then he says, the disciples, by faith, perceived, they observed, they noticed Jesus' glory, the perceptible manifestation of His Majesty behind the sign, and they put their faith in Him. Like every person in every place and in every time, you you must choose to be blind. Or you must choose to see. And you can only see when you live by faith and not by sight. And thirdly, from this part of our passage, we learn tonight, and this is your fill in the blank spot, that great sensual sin is not so bad as willful blindness. I get this from his allusion to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, part of the point here is that there is great sensual sin. And, of course, there is great judgment for that sin. Witness Sodom and Gomorrah. But as awful as it was, even that was not as reprehensible as willfully closing your eyes, being unwilling to see the glory of God. You see it's actually not hard to understand. When you get to know a drug addict, drug addicts know that their life is not right. If you get to know a prostitute, prostitutes are not under the delusion that all is well. Far worse are those who see God at work and willfully reject it. These are the people that you talk to and you tell about the fact that God is working in your life. You do tell people about the fact that God is working in your life, right? You do tell people what you have learned in your quiet time this morning. You did have a quiet time this morning, right? You see, these are parts of, of the whole that it takes for you to manifest, to display, to make easily observable the glory of God in your life. And those who willfully reject it, Jesus says to those whom much is given, much will be required. Because it is the self-satisfied, arrogant person who will not see the truth who will be judged more harshly than the person who is dependent upon alcohol. The implications of this teaching for the Western English-speaking Christendom are sobering. The people around you have Christ at least theoretically visible to them. And they are rejecting him. That is why, my friends, you and I need to witness, we need to manifest the glory of God in our life and our speech. We need to plead with those who believe that they're satisfied with football and beer so that they can see what is really, truly valuable. You and I are Christ to those around us. Be Christ to those who are around you so that you and they can rest in Christ's authority. Don't judge quote unquote sinners. Jesus didn't. He ate with prostitutes and tax collectors and he drank wine and beer by the way. When we declare this message, we must have the same concern and pity in our voices that Jesus does when he says, woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Chorazin. This is our attitude with the tax collector and the professional. And Jesus continues in verse 25. To reveal him. This passage teaches indisputably that knowledge of God does not depend on mere human insight and education. Instead, knowledge of God, really knowing who God is, depends on God's revelation to us and our having a humble heart that's willing to see and hear. One of the best weekends in my entire life was great because it was also one of the most humbling weekends of my life. Two other Americans and I went down to Leon, Mexico, and we were there to interview a man who wanted to be, um, become one of our church's missionaries. So we went down there to meet him, and then we were going to bring a report to our church and, and see if our mission board would support him. The guy who was in front of us had a 6th grade education. He was a bar owner in Tijuana for decades. Think about what that means in terms of gross immorality. And he became a Christian in his late 40s only to receive very credible death threats. So he beat it out of Tijuana and he went down to central Mexico, where he was now now planting five churches at the same time in and around the city of Guanajuato. So here we were. We were sitting, us Americans, with one of us was a translator, in this concrete one-room house, spellbound by his exposition Of Scripture. He was speaking the Word of God to us like I never heard in seminary. A man with a sixth grade education and years and years as a bar owner in Tijuana. Humbling, but glorious. Because the Holy Spirit was at work in his heart. And it was well worth the two weeks puking Montezuma's revenge after it. And tonight, you can learn at a significantly lower personal cost than I did, this important truth. Intellectual gifts are less important than humble dependence. Because it is only when we are humbly dependent upon God, when we are facing credible death threats and forced to remove our family from Tijuana and go a thousand miles south to preach God's word on a bus, that we actually learn who God is. It is only when we approach God through his word with a desire to hear and to see as opposed to arguing about this question and that question that we will be actually able to learn what we need to learn. God himself. Now it is also true on the other side that some have used these verses to breed an anti-intellectual approach to scripture. Now This is certainly not correct, as all of you know that I just spent four years and a whole bunch of money to get a doctorate. But to say that great learning is not necessary to know God is not the same thing as to say that great learning won't help us to know God better. Of course it will. I appreciate the image of God's Word as a pool. The gospel is a shallow pool in which a toddler can wade. But the good news of Jesus Christ is a deep ocean that an elephant can drown in. Great learning is not needed to understand the message. Jesus saves. But no learning is enough to plumb the depths of the grace of God. Both mind and heart are important. We must seek to understand as well as we can and learn as much as we can, but we must do it with a humble heart. In fact, to speak to the other side, Peter gives us a very good indication that we need to be as clever as we can be. He says, in your hearts, first of all, humbly honor Christ, the Lord is holy, always being prepared with your head to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you. Yet, back to the heart, do it with gentleness and respect. See, having on the one hand a right view of our own gifts and the fact that it is the Lord who ultimately chooses those who will recognize him, having this balance will enable you and me to rest in his authority. And we will be able to work because he gives us the work. We will be able to rest knowing that our success does not depend upon us Both when we fail, so-called, and when we succeed in winning souls and making disciple, making disciples. And therefore, that is why you, right where you are, can tell your neighbors what Christ is doing in your life. Because after all, what is a witness A witness is someone who simply says, this is what I saw. This is what I heard. This is what I experienced. And Jesus calls you to be a witness, not to make up some grand argument, but to tell the people what you have seen. And when you go to his word, and when you explore it and find him and meet him there, when you have breakfast with God, the manna from the Lord, so to speak. He will take you through the day and he will enable you to digest it, so to speak, by telling the world around you, this is what I have seen from our Lord. And when you do this, you will rest in Christ's authority. And speaking of rest, he intentionally invites us to do this very thing. Jesus says, come to me, All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I don't need to tell you that these are three of the most comforting verses in the entire Bible. Do you ever feel like you just need some rest? Do you ever feel just beaten? You're running hither and yon. There's another crisis. There's another thing to do. There's another person to see. And you just can't find rest. Here, in these verses... We see a very strong correlation between Christ's authority, his absolute sovereign authority on the one hand, and his calm, loving invitation on the other. The last blank on your notes is Jesus authoritatively invites you to work with him. I've kind of skated over all the authority parts of this passage so far. Let's quickly tie this main theme together. Jesus, in verse 20, authoritatively denounces. He judges in verses 22 and 24. Jesus asserts, all things have been handed over to me, and in in and that he chooses to whom the Father should be revealed in verse 27. And in verse 28, he invites us to find comfort in him through taking his yoke in verse 29. Each one of these is a step, is another added proof that Christ has the authority over your life and over the unbelievers around you. Only one with absolute, supreme, confident authority can speak like this. If you miss everything else I say tonight, I want you to recognize here this is the man to whom you owe your allegiance. He is your king. We should call him Father because he invited us to, but we should also say, Your Majesty. Because we speak to a far higher authority than Queen Elizabeth will ever be. And because God is sovereign, you can pray. Because God is in absolute control, you can do work of any kind. Your heart finds strength to pray and your hands find strength to type your sermon as you're working on it. Because God, with all authority, enables you to do so. Don't think, why should I pray? God is in control. The same would be true is, why should I cook dinner? Because God is in control. There are two kinds of work that God has called both of us to do. We must pray and we must prepare dinner if we're going to find what God can do in our lives and the lives of those whom we love and if we want to eat they're both two kinds of work and we must depend on the same sovereign God in both and at the same time Jesus invites us to rest come to me all who labor and are heavenly laden so which is it? Must we work or must we rest? And the answer of course is yes. Jesus offers us to receive rest and he commands us to take his yoke. We must understand with the missionary David Livingstone when he said at the end of his life I never sacrificed his tireless labors to open up the heart of africa to missionaries was worth malaria was worth lions was worth headhunters cuz david livingston understood that labor done close to christ was rest rest from what what was he what what would he have considered work from the helter-skelter of life that is consumed in rejecting the claims of the glory of God, that is willfully blind to all that God wishes to show us of his glory. And my friends, you don't have to go to Central Africa to see it. You can see it right here in Santa Maria, California. You can see it whenever you are willing to receive his rest. By working closely with him with eyes and ears wide open. The other thing we see in this passage is you must repent in verse 20. You must receive God's revelation as little children in verse 25. You must come to Christ in verse 28. You must take Christ's yoke and learn from him in verse 29. God is sovereign and we have work to do. Never forget, as Dallas Willard said, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to you getting your hands dirty and doing what needs to be done. Grace is instead opposed to you believing that you getting your hands dirty will earn you a spot in heaven. So then what are we to do? How do we rest in Christ's authority? First, we tune our eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. We do this every day as we turn to understand God in his word. My friends, you've, you've been hearing preachers say that all your life. But you will not be able to take the next step without it. You must go to God. You must eat your spiritual breakfast so to speak, that oatmeal that will stick to your ribs so that you can know him and then let him be known. And secondly, we need to have ears that hear what people are saying so that we can respond with grace. We need to actually listen for opportunities to show the people around us love so that they can see that God is worth trusting. God is worth listening to. And listening to them is that first step in loving them in the first place. And when you give your eyes and when you give your ears humbly to see and hear, you will be spared from a life that is willfully blind and willfully deaf, constantly moving about to try to find that which you cannot find when all you have to do is respond to the God who says, come, and you will find rest. Rest in Christ's authority. Heat and desperation pour from your face as you intermittently catch a glimpse of the rocky crag towering above you. You face danger from robbers. You face danger from beasts. Danger from scorching heat and bitter frost. Danger from despair. But it will finally give way to elation when you see your goal all the answers to all your sufferings of your life will be found in the home of the eternally wise one. And eagerly as you approach the cabin and you catch the crackle of fire within and the soft singing of angelic lips, you, the pilgrim, will reach to open the door when you are suddenly caught in the arms of the one who says, Well done good, and faithful servant. You can believe this because life is a tale told by a lover, full of sound and fury, but signifying everything. And your master knows you're here. Lord, we do come before you because we desperately need you. We desperately need you to guide us. We need you to enable us to see and to hear you and to let you be known to those around us. Lord, let us find our rest in you even as you give us our labor to glorify you. We worship and praise you in Jesus' name, amen.